Hi, this is Chris Wyatt from Marvel Spider-Man and Stretch Armstrong and the Flex Fighters, and you're listening to Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Hello and welcome to Neil Before Pod, an experimental Neil Before Pod episode where we're going to talk about something that's connected to something that's coming out in the near future. It's a radical idea that no one else on the internet ever does. Nobody ever does retrospective things like this. We're the first and we're deciding to preempt Secret Invasion by talking about another time that Secret Invasion was done in animated form in the Avengers animated show Earth's Mightiest Heroes. Joining me for this is someone who also watched Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes. It's Aaron. Hello. He was also here when you promised that we were the only Legion podcast, so it's totally relevant. Everybody's in the right place. We just need Chris, really, as well. Too bad. We do. Chris needs to be there to help Google and prove me wrong. <laughs> I know I'm wrong in this case. I was joking, of course. Well, indeed. I was just reveling in that a little bit. Because the internet is full of, here's the last thing that tried to do this, or... Now that there's a new thing coming out, let's revisit the last thing that they did in this space. All those articles so, that were saying the Matrix sequels were good, actually, before the fourth Matrix film came out. So you've decided to join the crowd. Yeah, why not? It's all about them clicks. So it'll be doubly disappointing when we don't get them this time. For this, we decided to watch, or I decided, and then assigned them to you, some episodes of Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes that deal with the secret invasion plot, which was a comics plot that I didn't reread before this because I just didn't feel like it. I thought the cartoon would be fine to stand on its own. But we watched Season 2, Episode 7, Who Do You Trust? Season 2, Episode 10 through 13 as well. Those titles are Prisoner of War, Infiltration, Secret Invasion, and Along Came a Spider. But we'll start with her history with this show. It was on quite a while ago. It was cancelled after two seasons, which seems to be a pattern with really good cartoons. They get unfairly cancelled after a couple of seasons. And then we spend the rest of our lives lamenting the fact that they're not here anymore. Looking at you, Spectacular Spider-Man. It's a real shame. So what's your history with this cartoon? What do you remember from when you first watched it and how much you enjoyed it back then? And, and how you felt revisiting it, I suppose? The most noticeable thing about the revisit for me, I think, is the fact that they did have such a tightly woven, connected plot between some of the episodes. Like the one we're going to talk about, you see evidence of it really early on before you think you're going to that was my impression from re-watching it from the first watch i did enjoy it. i can't claim i enjoyed this as much as spectacular spider-man but it was something that i did get some pleasure out it was introduced to me by you i have no connection to this from beforehand and probably wouldn't have done if the avengers hadn't been a thing whereas spider-man much easier to have a connection to from beforehand so you introduced me to it and said if you like this try that and I did. I have a memory of liking season one a lot more than season two, though. And because we've rewatched season two, I am interested to know if that stands up. But unfortunately, I'd have to go back and rewatch season one in order to get that. So I don't know if that's going to skew this or not. We'll have to see. Season one was better. Season one was much more deliberate. It took longer to tell its story, whereas this one, it throws a lot of arcs at you over a very short period of time. It's the same number of episodes, but it does a lot more. Yeah. Which makes it feel a bit more rushed than the first season. Which is strange, given when they first introduce the scroll, how far back that actually is. It's really weird to then say, but it was nonetheless rushed. But still. Yeah, I do wonder if the writing was on the wall and the people making the show knew it. 
and they had the inkling that season two was going to be their last, so they thought, we want to do all this stuff, let's just do it. It's always mad when people rush through their plots and their villains. We have to get through the comic stuff as fast as possible. We'll give Moon Knight one season and we'll do all the comics. You sort of understand a little bit, even if you don't agree with it. I'm only going to get one chance to do Moon Knight and I want to try and do everything that I liked. And I'm only going to get one season, so I'm going to do it and I want to put my spin on it. I understand why the artist wants to do that because they're showing you their love for the subject by giving you their take on it. But it does feel like it's a bit of a impatient look. Yes, you might not get another go at this, but if you did a really good job with a narrow plot, somebody else might be able to pick it up later and you would still benefit because the thing you loved would be getting a really good treatment. So I do get it, but it does seem a shame if somebody is just trying to rush through it, even if it's driven by a love for the subject matter. Yeah, I don't know that for certain that that's what happened, but it kind of feels like it might have I did interview one of the writers who wrote a few episodes. One of the episodes we're going to talk about today, actually, a while back, you don't ask those kind of questions. Is your second season not as good because you were rushing through it? I don't think he was a showrunner either. I think he was just a staff writer, so he brought in to write whatever. This show was replaced by, to my mind, a far worse Avengers show called Avengers Assemble, which is geared at a much younger audience, and it's a lot sillier. So you have things like Hulk and Hawkeye arguing over who gets to eat cookies and things like that. Certainly in the first season, I never made it much further than that because I quickly identified that I was not the audience for it. And this is a show I was the audience for, clearly, because they they lean more into, let's adapt these characters. We just happen to be doing it in animation. A bit like in Spectacular Spider-Man, where the medium wasn't important in terms of what they were trying to do, and it appealed to... A broader audience. I was struggling to define that actually. And do you know what the target age range for this was, and by implication, what it was then for the new show? It would be commissioned to appeal to young viewers. So you're probably talking ten-year-olds, something like that. Is that the one we're looking at now, or the new one? They would have both been commissioned to appeal to the same audience, probably. But it's just what the creatives do with that. Sometimes you get smarter, more grown-up storytelling because, you know, the kids will watch for the flashing lights Mm. and they'll follow some of the story. And then when they get older and rewatch it, they'll think, oh, this is a lot cleverer than it was back in the day. This is surprisingly clever for me. I found that when I revisited some of the cartoons I watched growing up, like the 90s Spider-Man cartoon. Mm. When I rewatched that as an adult, I was thinking, wow, this is really sharp. It really holds up. This show does that, but I don't think Avengers Assemble will. I found a noticeable difference, actually. Between the two of us, we've had conversations on Earth Mightiest Heroes and Spectacular Spider-Man quite a lot. Those are the two that we've really discussed. And I found with Spectacular that I could watch it as an adult. That was quite noticeable for me, that I could still get something out of it. I do think that even though I did enjoy some of Earth Mightiest Heroes, it was less easier for me to connect to. It was definitely more of a kid's show. Say Earth Mightiest Heroes, not even the new one. Not that that made it awful, not that mean I couldn't enjoy some of it, but I, just seeing as you mentioned those differences that the creators give, I think it was definitely noticeable that whoever did Spectacular Spider-Man aimed at a different level than Earth Mightiest Heroes did. And for me, when the second series comes around and it feels less tight, I did struggle to connect with some of the episodes. Maybe it was just one step too far and one step too 
removed to enjoy it. I don't know, but it was one of the thoughts I had. That may be because you're watching these episodes out of context, just for the purposes of this. If you'd watched all of season one, then went into season two, you might be more gripped by it, you might be more in it. I did watch other parts of season two as well, and it was noticeably different. I think stylistically, the aim of the creators is different between Spectacular Spider-Man and this. Again, I'm not saying it makes it worse, but it's just, I found it very noticeable. I think it is stylistically rather than plot engagement. I found myself engaged by episode one of Earth Mightiest Heroes. Sorry, episode one of season two of Earth Mightiest Heroes. The one with the Fantastic Four. Yeah, maybe we could even discuss it, but I did find that there were differences somehow in what the creator of the plot was trying to do. I don't know, maybe it'll come up, maybe it won't, we can discuss. With this show, as opposed to Spectacular Spider-Man, they are juggling a lot more main characters as well, whereas Spectacular was specifically about Peter Parker, and then the people that orbit him got attention based on how they were going to connect to him. Whereas in this, you've got the Avengers, which is far more people obviously. And they're all worthy of coverage in their own right. Not that the other Spider-Man characters aren't, but they're all, in theory, lead characters in their own books, their own shows, potentially. Maybe there was a certain dissonance between the age of the characters then, because that's the other thing I was thinking about the other day. When you see the teenage romance in a show about teenagers, you think, sure, they're teenagers. When you see teenage romance in Earth's Mightiest Heroes, as an adult, it's kind of weird. But as a 10-year-old, you'd actually be still looking up to a teenager and thinking, oh, yeah, that's what those idiots do when they go through puberty. Yeah, they all go mad. It could just be that there's old little things that it's difficult for me as an adult to connect to. One thing I remember from when you watched it, when I introduced it to you all those years ago, and I don't know why I remember this, but I remember you thinking their take on the Hulk was very interesting because they play up the fact that there are two different people in this show. Not that the Hulk is in these episodes much. Yeah, it is interesting to see them as two separate characters fighting for the same body. And they do actually come to an agreement, I'm sure, at one point. In fact, it's that even Banner's introduction where he has to bargain. Yeah, he tells the Hulk to go and help defend New York from Graviton. And the Hulk says, yes, I'll do it. But in exchange, I stay. Yeah. And then they do this thing later on where the Hulk lets Banner out like one day a month or something like that to do whatever he wants. I do find that very interesting. I also find it very weird because I am more used to a Jekyll and Hyde approach whereby there is something within you that is uncontrollable and that's a problem for you, but it's something you have to come to terms with because it is part of your nature. So it's definitely the same person who is struggling with an element of who they are. That's just what I'm used to. And maybe that's because of even the old 70s show that I used to watch. It's just my introduction to the Hulk. So I'm not saying that I think one or the other is wrong, but I definitely had that introduction. So now when I come to it and I see two characters fighting for the same body, that is an interesting storyline. You can do quite a lot with that. I won't deny it, but it does seem to remove something for me about that Hulk that I know. The idea that the Hulk can be a rage monster, but actually he's okay with that and he can control it when he wants ice cream and cookies, as you say in the new show. But even in the old one, he could just be a little bit narked. In Earth Mightiest Heroes, he would stomp around and growl at people That's not rage. That's barely anger. That's 
frustration. Yeah, he's fully rational. Yeah, it's really weird for me. I can intellectually connect with it and say the new is interesting because it's a human and almost a demon fighting for control over the body. A demon's not fair because he's not evil, but it's two spirits fighting for the same body because they've, for whatever reason, been pushed into the same physical object. Yeah, it is a really weird disconnect for me because they keep telling me that he gets stronger the angrier he is. Well, when he's just walking around the mansion, I kind of expect Was to be able to easily arm wrestle him because he's not <laughs> that annoying, just a bit miffed. So, yeah, it is interesting. I do struggle with it, but I recognize that's because it's the character that I've been introduced to. Presumably, if I'd come up through the comics instead, then I'd have a completely different opinion on it. Yeah, for the most part in the comics, he is dissociative, so he has different personalities. So you have Banner, then you have Hulk and Grey Hulk. They're all different people that reside within the same body. And they do all this weird stuff, such as the Hulk was always within him, but then the Gamma Bomb gave that personality a body that it could then inhabit. It's all a bit strange. It works and it doesn't in different measures. But in this, they've really leaned into the fact that they're two different people. Anger doesn't seem to be the trigger. He can just become the Hulk whenever he wants. But when one's in control, they have to give up control in order for the other one to come out. That's an interesting dynamic. And it'd be interesting to see that explored in a Hulk show all its own. Even the MCU version is two different people. So we're still wondering what happened to the real Hulk because Banner is inhabiting his body at the moment. Well, I was going to say, you say it's two different people. Not anymore. No, they've quite happily merged him into one. And as you say, without explanation, it just... All of a sudden, he turns up, and there is one personality. We're all balanced, and we're fine. Or what he's done is suppress the Hulk's personality, and he's wandered about in his body while this suppressed personality is getting really annoyed until it can break out. They could go down that route, yeah. We'll never know. Well, we might know. Certainly in Thor Ragnarok, it confirmed that the Hulk is a different entity. Yes. I mean, I can't deny that, but there's been no follow-up on that as far as I can see. No, none at all. And they just gloss over it. He's put the brain and the brawn together and now he's just Banner but in Hulk's body and then when the Ancient One separates out his spirit it's Banner's ghost that comes out the Hulk Mm. as well so there's more to play with there I really want to see them play with it which they may or may not do it just depends on whether the MCU decides to actually bother with consequences and impact and things again Yeah I'd be interested to know actually if the old characters are going to get any time in the spotlight Presumably, Phase 5 will allow them to do that. Phase 4, they needed to introduce new people. We wanted to see some new people. The contracts ended because people had done enough films and therefore we needed new people. It it all came at the right time to come together nicely. But a couple of people's contracts have carried on and it seems like people have allowed Thor to have a go. So presumably we're allowed to see a bit more Banner. Yeah, I think he's signed a new contract maybe, so he'll be appearing again. The end of She-Hulk, it's been long enough, we'll just spoil it. The end of She-Hulk introduces that he has a son. That's just mad. I don't even understand. The character's interesting enough that you don't need to give him (laughs) a crutch like that that has no particular rationale at all. He has a son in the comics. It's a consequence of Planet Hulk. While he's on Sakaar in the comics, he falls in love and then fathers a son. Because the comics did it is a terrible reason to do it. Oh, I agree. And the way it's deployed in She-Hulk is rubbish. He just shows up at the end and he's like, hi guys, this is my son. Okay. Madness. Let's definitely not talk about She-Hulk though. (laughs) I don't need that depression right now. Sure. So shall we just go into spoilers and then get stuck into what we're here to talk about? Let's do it. Avengers, assemble! 
Okay, let's start a bit with the plot. So we're here to talk about Secret Invasion, which is a TV show that's coming up on Disney Plus at some point. We don't have a date for it as we record, so we're just getting a jump on this and we'll slot it out neatly at some point before Secret Invasion appears, just for that glorious synergy. But the plot of Secret Invasion, certainly in the comics and this, is that Skrulls decide to infiltrate Earth at various levels of government and through various superheroes in order to claim the planet as their own as far as this plot goes. I forget what the comics do. I haven't read it in a long time and I guess it didn't make too much of an impression on me to remember it. So we're just going to go by what happens here. So the the imposters are installing themselves everywhere in order to enact a master plan that allows them to take over the planet because they believe they are promised it from some prophecy that they all believe in without question, which we'll definitely talk about. Before we did this, I remember you talking about how you hate these sleeper agent imposter plots. So do you want to talk about about that? It's worth getting out of the way so everybody can take my words in the context of that particular bias, certainly. So I have always hated, as far back as shows that I've watched in the 80s, any plot where the enemy takes the form of one of the heroes, goes and has a conversation with one of the other heroes that inevitably ruins that relationship, and then nobody ever acknowledges that it was an imposter that said these things. And I do understand that there is still in one person's mind, yes, but I saw your face say that, it had an impact on me, my emotional state changed, and potentially even the line, but I think that that was in your head anyway, even if you didn't dare say it. I can't deny that if they explored those things, then it could still be interesting because the two characters who are affected by the imposter putting a wedge between them would be in some way dealing with their emotions. They would be dealing with the fallout. Essentially, there would be consequences. And that's nice. But in my experience, it's just a plot device. The bad guy turns up, ruins the relationship. The two main characters hate each other evermore because the writers need them to hate each other. Nobody even mentions it. Nobody calls back on it. And even though there are consequences, they seem just daft consequences that could be resolved with that old problem we've seen even in modern works hang on a minute, couldn't they have just talked to each other about this? Couldn't they have gone for a point if they're older? Couldn't they have at least Facebook messaged about this if they're younger? And so I learned to hate it because it just seems so forced. I think it was one of the ones where before I coined the phrase, before I knew what it was, it's one of those ones where I was seeing the plot force play out. Characters do things because the plot needs them to, darling. And I hate I hate it so much. I need proper consequences. I need actions that mean something. So I am definitely going to come in with that baggage on my shoulders that I am dreading that any scroll plot is going to bring in that same problem, that they'll do things and the plot needs them to just stay unresolved in order to create a false tension. I am definitely still dreading it for the upcoming MCU. I think I'm pleased at least to say that I don't think I saw that here in EMH at all. And that's excellent. Everybody in EMH was talking to each other whenever they thought they could. They even made some tests. Let's see if this guy is a 
role or not. I'm going to do it by taking this action, which you can talk about one of the characters. So people are behaving intelligently, even emotionally intelligently in EMH when they're faced with an identity problem. I'm so glad. Will the MCU follow this guideline? Watch this space, I suppose. Yeah, I think this show does it pretty well. The scroll Captain America is the main threat because he's the one that's infiltrated the Avengers. And he behaves enough like Cap that nobody notices that he's behaving strangely or that he's undermining them from within. It's little things that he does. And there's something that Fury notices after the fact when he turns in the Hulk, which isn't one of the episodes that we watched, but it was in the previously on. So there is. But when he tells the Hulk to surrender himself because they'll sort it out. And Fury says, that's not what Captain America would have done. How did nobody notice that? But it was kind of close enough. And the way he justified it worked because it's, don't worry, we're going to help you here. We'll have you out in five minutes or whatever. Sounds reasonable on face value. Yeah, Yeah, it's reasonable enough. And then when the plot is over with, the Avengers are okay with the real Cap because they understand that they weren't dealing with the real Cap all this time. Yeah. So they bear no grudge against them because it wasn't him. They know that. And quite frankly, the number of fantastical things they've seen throughout all of series one and the start of season two, it is just a standard Tuesday to them that stuff <laughs> like this happens. I'm pleased with that. Yeah. I was thinking about other stories that I've seen where they do these imposter-ish things and some of them handle them better than others. One that I remember is in Buffy, and I don't know if you were still watching it at this point, an episode in season four where Faith and Buffy switched bodies. Mm. That was done both well and poorly because Faith in Buffy's body was acting very much not like Buffy and no one seemed to notice. Yeah. But it was the aftermath that I think it was done quite well because Faith in Buffy's body sleeps with her boyfriend at the time and it's something that they both agree that they shouldn't really feel weird about but they still do afterwards and it takes a little while for them to resolve that. So that's a really good... Rationally, we know this isn't either of our fault but also we still have that emotional issue with each other that we need to work through. Well, at least they spoke about it. That's the minimum requirement sometimes for me, that it has to be acknowledged. Yeah, I think they avoid talking about it for a little while, but eventually they do. And again, avoiding talking about it for a little while is good, as long as you get to that next step. It's okay to avoid talking about it if you show that the characters are embarrassed, they can't handle it, and that they've acknowledged that it did happen. The thing that really narks me is when nobody acknowledges that it's happened, and they're all just angry at each other, for reasons that feel like they could be resolved, even if it takes a long time, even if it's going to be awkward. It's just almost as if the characters themselves accept that the plot was needed and don't challenge it in character. That's the ones that I dreaded, but fair enough. I don't remember Buffy. I didn't particularly like it, so I've not got a great memory, but yeah, fair play on that one. I remember... One story, I can't remember what it was in though, I was racking my brains trying to figure it out but I couldn't, and it goes back to one of the things you said where it's that I believe you would think this and that's why I accepted it when you said it or the other you said it and it's the idea that on some level this other character feels like there's something that the other isn't telling them or isn't being honest about. So it's believable in the sense that I believe that you feel this way and just haven't talked about it before. And whether that's true or not, that again can create a problem when the real one comes back. Again, if the two characters acknowledge that and they say that and they talk about it and it becomes a thing, that's plot. I'm more bothered by, I can't even remember, is there a Star Trek episode where a character dies but is replaced by the same character from a different universe and everybody just goes on as if it's fine? There's a few of those. That drives me up the wall. No. (laughs) 
the person you know died. You can't just have a plot thing and say, the plot is resolved, we're moving on. No, this has consequences and it must be acknowledged because it's not the same person. And it's the same thing with the imposters. You are not the same people as you were before any of this happened. You need to acknowledge this. The situation is different. Yeah. The first episode then, Who Do You Trust? Episode 7 of Season 2 is, I think, the one that will be most like the show that we're going to get, but it's still pretty far away because there are Avengers in this story and there are no Avengers that we know of, except Rhodey in the Secret Invasion TV show. The way they're selling the Secret Invasion TV show is it's some kind of espionage thriller with Nick Fury trying to root out imposters in government. And Rhodey fits into that because he's still a military guy. So that's a natural fit there. But here it's the Avengers and everything. And you have Fury, he's been ousted from S.H.I.E.L.D. That happened in season one. Maria Hill's in charge of S.H.I.E.L.D. But he's sneaking around in the sidelines with Quake, a.k.a. Daisy Johnson, who was in... Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as well. Chloe Bennett's character in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And he's investigating all this because Black Widow uncovered Viper as a scroll prior to this and he's looking into it all and he's the one that puts Iron Man on the trail of the scrolls. and then Iron Man takes it with his usual insanity and just decides that he can't trust anybody and tears the Avengers apart. This is the closest we're going to get then to overlap between the two, isn't it? Because it's Fury Probably. that uncovers it. It's Fury that's investigated. It's Fury that's no longer in S.H.I.E.L.D., even if for different reasons. Nonetheless, he's no longer in this large organisation. He's using his network of contacts as a spy to solve the problem instead. And his, as Chris is fond of talking about, infinite collection of secret bases. Why not? I mean, he is effectively a superhero from the purposes of this show, and that's his superpower. Resources, yeah. <laughs> yeah why not? Everybody's got something. He is well prepared. Is that one of the few things that we're going to see the same? But nonetheless, it works. It's the right character, it's the right motivation, and it's the right angle. So happy to see that. Speaking of the right character, you also mentioned the connection there to Iron Man. That's one of the things I most liked about this whole plot arc, actually. I think episode seven might be my preferred episode of the five that we've watched because we get people behaving intelligently all the way throughout, the good guys and the bad guys. The whole idea that he plays Iron Man to see if he's a real human or not. It feels like the best way of interrogating somebody without actually doing anything horrible to anybody. I'm going to see if you behave like you. You do. Okay, I know I can trust you now. And Fury knows, presumably, that he can't play this as a normal chessboard. You can't just set the Avengers as they are on the bad guys because it's not a stand-up fight. So it doesn't matter if there's some social fallout because as far as he's concerned, they're all pawns on his chessboard anyway. So I've got Iron Man there and I've got the other Avengers there. Brilliant. That's fine. I mean, one of the other groups are a Skrull anyway. So all I've done is separated the non-Skrulls from the ones that could be infiltrated. So breaking up the Avengers like that is a bad thing for us watching. It's a bad thing for Tony, but it's just moving pieces around for Fury. So I think seeing Iron Man behave with consequences, love it. Seeing Fury manipulate the chessboard, great. And then to bring in the other set, you've got the scrolls playing the most perfect game of no, you're a Cylon that you're ever going to see. <laughs> yeah. They've got two Cylons working very nicely, manipulating both sides 
that the good guys are working from. You've got one working with Fury and you've got one obviously working with the other Avengers. And they're all very much sure who can we use? Well, conveniently, we set this plot up right back in series one where Hawkeye was taken off screen for a bit. He could have been scrolled at that point. He was separated into different locations. Turns out it wasn't. Turns out that it was actually the other side of that split up Mockingbird. But they use the reality. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? The best lies have a foundation in truth. Everything they said was absolutely correct. We took somebody into a room and we scrolled them. But it was Mockingbird, not Hawkeye. So I thought all of that was really nicely done. And with the setup, whether it was a perfect setup they planned from season one or not, who knows? No idea. But even if it was just, hey, wait a minute. Do you remember that thing we did in season one? We can use that. Who cares? That's still good. That's still putting it together nicely. So maybe even just for that stuff, I think episode seven is the strongest of them all. And the interesting thing is you don't see it, but presumably Mockingbird did something to prove herself to, well, scroll Mockingbird, prove herself to Fury as trustworthy. I can only assume so. We don't see it on camera, but by that point when you're watching, I think you've got sufficient enough trust in the writers that you're okay that there was a card being played off screen. The idea that even Fury can be manipulated, and let's face it, by the Queen of the Scrolls, if there's anybody that's going to be good at it, you'd expect it was the leader. I found that okay. I didn't find that disappointing. I think mostly because, as I say, they played the perfect No Your Asylum card, and I could imagine that that's the same discussion that she had with fury she just gave him reason if she was clever she encouraged him to work out that it must have been hawkeye because there's nothing better than getting somebody else to realize it for you you know that's the best way of manipulating somebody don't tell them let them work out what you want them to work out so i was okay with that yeah i'll assume that the queen scroll is an awesome spy fine yeah, and one thing that gives the scrolls in this an edge is that they can duplicate memories as well as the appearance. You're coming into my most confusing part, though, now, because <laughs> I didn't love everything about this, and that's the part that I didn't like, because I never understood it. I watched episode one again because I needed to get some context, and I wanted to see Cap being taken, because that's our first exposition dump of how this works. And it gets confused to me because in episode one, they say, I have all of your emotions. And I'm thinking, okay, if you have that, then I feel like you're going to be absolutely perfect. There's no way anybody's going to be able to tell you apart because you're going to have all the reactions that you need to have. If you can do that, that makes you the best spy in the universe because you've got everything. You've got who they are and how they would behave. But then in episode seven, they say, we've got all of your memories. Oh, now that's totally different. That's a totally different thing. Because if you've only got the memories, how you interpret those memories with emotions can be completely different because you're going to use your own rationale to interpret what those memories actually meant to the person. And forever on from that point, I kept both of the things in my head and I had to say, oh no, it must be the memories because Scrollcap makes some mistakes in how he deals with people and allows Fury to say, oh, yep, that was not our cap. Definitely isn't. It's close because he's got the memories, but not good enough because he's not got the emotions. I'm okay if a character makes a mistake. The Scroll thought he was getting the emotions. He thought he understood the science better than others. But it's really difficult in a plot like this if you are trying 
to confuse the audience, but in a way that they're going to find pleasurable, then getting your ground rules right, I think, is really important because the audience needs to know where they can and can't be tricked. It's like that whole idea of solving the murder in Saturday afternoon TV shows, Murder, She Wrote, or name another Saturday afternoon murder show, where the main character then says in the reveal, off screen, I went away and did three days research, and I found out your secret backstory (laughs) that nobody else knows. Oh, God, no, I've just been watching this, and it's a waste of time. No, the rules are... You have to give me stuff that's on screen. Even if I can't work it out, if you go back and say, do you remember when he picked up the scarf? And you go, oh, I do remember when he picked up the scarf. Oh my God, that was it. That's the reveal you want. There's the emotional payoff for the audience. You need to set your ground rules well. And I, I was slightly bothered by that one. And if it had been a small mistake, I'd have forgiven it. But we're going to come on to episode 12 at some point where you have the payoff. The big payoff is a letdown for me. And that trouble with figuring out what the scrolls can and can't do is a big part of that. So bring that back up when you get to episode 12 for me. Yeah, we'll get to that. I think I know what you're driving at there. So we'll definitely get to that. Even prestige mystery box storytelling falls into that trap. I'm thinking of Sherlock, for example, where you'd reveal how he knows who the murderer is. And he'd say, well, I noticed this thing that was behind the table leg this table that's at the back of the room that you couldn't possibly have seen on camera technically it's there but you'd have to freeze frame and zoom in at the image to see the thing that's there absolutely okay sherlock is way smarter than me fine but i feel like i'm on rails watching this mystery play out rather than participating in it absolutely you have to show the chair leg in main shot and you have to show him studying it you don't have to say why he doesn't have to reveal what he's doing, but yes, you need to say the chair leg was important. Absolutely. A great example of, it's not quite the same thing, but it was in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, where the police captain, Captain Holt, was talking about the tell that he has when he's gambling in order to tell how he's bluffing. And he reveals it. He's saying, I just did it. I just did it again. I just did it again. And again, the tell is that he uses contractions, which he normally doesn't when he's talking right. normally. But if you're just watching that, you're not going to notice necessarily you might not notice that pattern of speech because using contractions is natural and they've never really established that he doesn't use them before and then you have to watch the whole series to see if he does or doesn't i suppose which in comedies is quite common where they introduce a personality trait that they only have in that episode because it's relevant for that episode and never had it before or since that sounds like plot force to me i hate that yeah it happens in a lot of sitcoms where it's like remember how i laugh nervously every time this person says this or whatever you did it this episode I'll give you that, but you've never done it before. You've just brought it in for this joke that you're trying to deliver. But anyway, that's a good example of that. And I didn't revisit all of his dialogue to see if he does, in fact, use contractions or not. But it was an interesting reveal because even in the context of the episode, it's one that you could pick out, but you could also not pick it out. And in this show, it tells you everything. So it doesn't really hide anything from you in terms of who the scrolls are or aren't. As in, you're, you're ahead of the characters most of the time. Yeah, in this episode, certainly, but I think they lose track of that later on. There's no real shocking reveals. The Mockingbird reveal is a little bit shocking, I guess, but I don't think she's been in it prominently enough for you to really invest in her in the way that you would in order for that reveal to really mean something. No, she's a secondary character. Yeah, but it's technically a shock because you didn't know she was a scroll until... Cap went for a clandestine meeting with her. Oh, yeah. It's good plot. That's fair enough. Which is fine, yeah. And I loved how that episode built up the paranoia because you get into Iron Man's head, the bit where he's in the mansion and he's cloaked and he's trying to scan everybody to see if there's anything that will give up. And then you've got Black Panther, who I think we've discussed before in this show is brilliant at everything. 
He's got the best tech. He's a genius. He's wise before his time. Yeah, has superpowers. He's infallible as far as right. this is concerned. What's going on? It's like, oh, yeah, Iron Man's in the corner cloak looking at us for some reason. <laughs> it's kind of hilarious how badly that works. It just doesn't work at all in the way that Stark intended. You do want, at some point during this, Black Panther to turn around and say, Cap's been acting funny for a couple of days. He's a scroll. He clearly knows. He's got the power and the wisdom to do it. He must have worked it out. <laughs> Just chose not to tell anybody for reasons. Yeah, it was part of some bigger wisdom that we couldn't appreciate. <laughs> but it's funny how the gaze gets shifted on Hawkeye and Cap's just standing there. Or Scroll Cap. I need to remember to keep prefacing that. Yeah. yeah. Scroll Cap is just standing there, not even reacting. Because, again, in a lot of these stories, what you get is just before the reveal, you get the people that are spies acting stupid so that it's easy to weed them out. In Deep Space Nine, for example, when you had Bashir as a changeling, and he's been a changeling for a good few episodes, and then as soon as the audience found out, he just started acting weird around everybody. Yeah. But that's because the actor didn't know until he got the script for that episode, so he didn't have time to fold that into his performance in previous episodes. Yeah, right. No, here they do actually have a clear aim for Captain America as a scroll because he bides his time and then he takes control of the team. It's a perfect setup. Yeah, it's nicely done. I really liked episode seven. Even his impassioned speech about, I'll lead you, it would be my honour to lead you, that sort of thing. Yeah. You would believe the real Captain America would say exactly those words the real one was also jumped in earlier so as an audience you think oh yeah actually he is behaving a bit weird but you can always rationalize it it's always close enough there's other clues like him embracing the tech shield that he's given which is something the real cap wouldn't entertain he's old faithful his old physical shield is what he wants he gets it back in the following episode after the ones we're talking about the one with vision he goes to wakanda to get it repaired well the vision tracks them down and Tries to kill them for some reason. But yeah, after that, the characters are divided. I liked how the end of the episode built that up, where you had everybody off in different places. And it's kind of tragic for Carol Danvers, who's Ms. Marvel in this show. She doesn't ever become Captain Marvel in this show. A newly minted Avenger. And then the day she becomes an Avenger, the team gets torn apart. And she kind of goes back to her old job at S.W.O.R.D. And Fury's off with his bit. Stark is alone in his tower, trying to figure all this out. And then the Avengers are not sure who they can trust, but they've got an imposter leading them. The montage at the end of that episode, cutting between, here's where everybody is now, was a really good place-setting type scene or sequence. Yeah, the whole thing works perfectly. As I say, it's definitely my favourite because of that whole setup, and they end it well, certainly. And then you have a couple of unconnected episodes, or they're partially connected. There's the Ballad of Beta Ray Bill, which explains what Thor's up to while all this is happening. And then there's the Red Hulk one, which is connected in the sense it's the way that Scroll Cap gets the Hulk off the board. Which is important, yeah. The fact that the plot is still carrying on in the background is one of the most important parts for this, actually, because otherwise it's not a secret war. If it's just something that comes up now and again, it wouldn't have the same effect of the scroll telling us they're manipulating things behind the scenes. I don't want to be told that. The fact that they are clearly manipulating things behind the scenes, and as you say, Fury points it out on camera, if you didn't get it from that episode, and you say scroll cap is behaving rationally still, you might not get it. You might not get it at all. But it allows Fury to call back on it, and you say, like I said, with, oh, I do see that scarf. I do remember him picking it up. As long as you can do that, you've done what you need to do with these plots. So, yeah, they scroll are still manipulating things. It's still in the plot. It's in the background, and it's waiting to be revealed. Very important and great to see. Yeah. 
they don't spend too long on it because it's only two episodes between seven and them picking up the plot again in ten. But it's still there. No, you, you don't need any more than that. You just want it to be yeah. there. You need to see them still having purpose, still taking action, still making choices, and they do. I don't want any more from that. I don't want a big lingering camera shot with somebody winking and going, I've got another one. I don't want it played up. Just I need to be able to see it on reveal. And it was. And then episode 10 answers the question of, where is the real Captain America? Because prior to that point, you're wondering, is he dead? Whereas it turns out he's on a scroll ship, they keep them alive. I don't think they explicitly explain why they keep the people they've replaced alive. It might have something to do with replicating the DNA or something at a later point. Maybe it wears off or I don't know. I don't think they explained it in dialogue. Maybe if you turn into somebody and then you turn into somebody else, you forget how to turn into the first person again until you go through the big machine zapper. Or maybe you can do the physical thing, but you replace the new second copy emotions with the first copy emotions or memories. So they need them for that. At this point in the setup, because episode seven is so good, I'm okay with not knowing that because I think it is that whole, have they built the trust? And at the moment, they've totally built the trust for me. I'm okay with saying, because science, we've got our funky device. It's got limitations. Limitations are good for plot. Moving on. I was all right with that. It didn't bother me because, as I say, they'd build that trust. Also, if we kill one of our main characters, we don't have them anymore. And it's a kid's show. So that's kind of gruesome. That's always going to be in the background. But again, with the trust, I'm okay with it having a foreground plot reason, even if I don't know exactly what it is. Yeah. And it was a good showcase for Cap this episode as well, in terms of how he reacts under pressure and things like that. Because he gets tortured and he refuses to break. He won't give them an inch every time, and he doesn't fall for their attempts to trick him when the fake Avengers come in. Yeah. One of them's disguised as Hulk, and he sucker punches him, he gut punches him, and the fake Hulk feels it. So that establishes that the powers don't transfer across without them doing something else. Sometimes. This is where it starts to go a bit weird for me. The episode itself doesn't go weird, but I find that the rules are suddenly going to change after this. To build on your last point, though, the part at the end I'd like to see with Cap, where he is the true hero in that he goes back for Viper. I want to see stuff like that. I want to see him being that hero to prove that he is who he is. He's not lost anything. It's a really well-written Captain America in this show. Yeah. He's like the MCU one. He's true to himself without being cheesy. Yes, he is. And that's a difficult balance to break, I think. Which is why episode 13, I think, rescues a lot of this for me. That will come back up. So, yeah, we'll hit that again at that point. Yeah. Like you say, he goes back for Viper. I like the idea of heroes and villains working together for a common goal, because whatever they have between them isn't a problem at the moment, because they have to escape, they have to survive. So it's about, here's the resources we have, we have to work together. And that's not really something the MCU's done yet, actually. Maybe that's something they should do when it comes to things like the Kang Dynasty and Secret Wars and things. We've got our villains that we haven't killed. We have to work together on this one because there are bigger things happening than whatever we're fighting about. Yeah, that could be nice. I would like to think that the consequences of it would be handled a little better than it was in this, because when you do see what happens to those villains in episode 13, it seems a bit mean but anyway as i say we'll come back to that well they fall back into type very quickly yeah it's not even that it's the idea of we have to work together so that we can get out of this because we're humans and it's our planet and if we aren't going to fight together then we're all lost by the way as soon as we're done you're going straight to jail so i'm going to get you to trade this prison for another prison but i assure you that this prison that you're going to is awesome 
because it's a human prison. <laughs> it's not one of these evil scroll prisons that you don't like. Our prison is much better for you. And I understand that it's a difficult thing. They're not going to stop being a supervillain, so you can really let them go. However, that's what makes it so interesting. That's why I want to see Cap acknowledge it. I want to see him have trouble. Right, what do I do? What do we do with these supervillains? They just helped us. I feel like as a human being, I owe them something. Nope, chain them up, string them up, get them in. <laughs> it's just too harsh for me. I don't say that it could go another way. Yeah, they're supervillains. They certainly don't have any interesting being other than civilian murderers. So it kind of possibly wasn't going to go another way. But I at least want my hero to have a little bit of doubt over their choices. Yeah, and I think at this point they'd introduced the prison that was in the microverse, as it's called here. Essentially the quantum realm. Same thing, just different name. So it's, we'll take you back to Earth, we'll get to shrink you down to an imperceptible size and lock you in a maximum security prison that, even if you escape it, you're really small, so you can't go anywhere. That's not horrible at all, you'll love it. Is that better or worse than being on a spaceship near Saturn? I think Cap incorrectly says Jupiter, but it clearly has rings. I suppose technically Jupiter has rings, but uh, I only bring that up because I'm the one who says technically accurate all the time. (laughs) More pronounced rings, though. Yeah. It's a small thing, but uh, it was something I noticed. I think this episode is good, but it sort of devolves into fairly standard escape fodder. They run about, they fight things, they free other people. It does, yeah. It's not the worst part of it, though, but yes, it it does do that. You're not going to get any surprises from it. The worst part is actually the introduction of, we have a shaman, and we have prophecies, and we're doing this for good old-fashioned religious reasons. (laughs) We'll just behave like total maniacs because religion is banned. I don't know if we should be teaching our children that religion always turns you into a cultist, but anyway. Problematic, a little bit. And it also seems to be at odds with how calculated their plan is as well because it's all thought out to the smallest detail and it's oh, it's just because we're religious nuts that's why we're doing this yeah. it doesn't seem to translate no it doesn't plus also it kind of makes kang statements from earlier on a little harder to understand kang is very much saying guys you're screwed on earth because you're just going to be a battleground for the scroll and the kree when they come you're not going to like what they do when they go at each other and you're caught in the middle but then Turns out, actually, the Kree were just seen off quite quickly by Ms. Marvel, so it's fine. And now the Skrull are here by themselves and don't appear to mention the word Kree at all because they're religious not. Oh, and by the way, their planet blew up, which means they're refugees trying to find a new place. So it's not that they've come here just because they think this is a good planet for them. No, it's because they're not as with a prophecy. They could quite happily have used all their science to say, right, we need a planet. Who's got a good planet that we can have? Well, we've come here and there's only one that's habitable really don't want to be on Mars. It's a bit nasty. So let's have this one. This one's really nice. Good scientific reasoning. We're not that nice people. We do believe that it's survival of the fittest. So sorry, you human blues. It's still evil, but it's scientifically evil rather than this mad thing about prophecies for no reason at all. We don't have enough fuel to travel in our 10,000 light years to look for another planet. We're kind of stuck here. We have to make do with this. Perfectly reasonable, yeah. Well, from an evil point of view, perfectly reasonable, yeah. It's reasonable as a motivation. Yes. This is as far as we could get, rather than, as you say, the religious nuttery. Well, a prophecy promised us this planet, so we're going to have it. It's a big problem I've actually found with science fiction and fantasy in general during my lifetime watching it. The idea that some writers don't seem to understand their genre well enough. It's something that you've seen even in modern day writings where people don't think through something well enough. They rely on what they previously know. In science fiction, 
you find that science can solve a lot of problems. I'm trapped behind a door. Yeah, I know. Just push the key card in, you'll be fine. You don't have a problem with that. We can't possibly get to that place over there. I've got a transporter, we'll be fine. All these problems can be solved by science. I've got a hideous disease, I know, but MedLab's just down there, mate. Just go in there and get cured. We've cured all disease. So any science fiction that wants to give you what would previously have been a normal problem on everyday Earth that writers know about is just solvable. The problems are solvable. So they have to think, right, what problems can't we solve? And it should be personal. It should be emotional. I mean, how many transporters you've got? I still feel upset that my dog's dead. You can't get me a new dog, can you? What have you got for that? No, you don't. You need to have these new problems. And I think the problem extends when they're trying to create mystery in science fiction. How can we create mystery? It should be simple as the lights are out around the corner. There could be a big monster there. That's the mystery. It's still going to be threatening. It's almost like in order to get mystery, they have to put a faith element in. They have to put something in. So what's unknowable? Belief and religion is unknowable. The audience can't possibly say there's a way around that. No. Fantasy uses religion because it's built in a world where people don't understand everything that goes on. That's fantasy. Science fiction, you need to write something different. It's just such a big shame, I think, that when a writer thinks, what am I going to use? They just seem to fall back on fantasy tropes to fill in gaps in science fiction. You see it all too often. And it's such a shame because surely there are plots out there because otherwise science fiction couldn't have even existed in the first place. And I think some of the better examples can play with the two. Once again, talking about Deep Space Nine, a big fixture of that show was the Bajoran religion. And it turns out from a scientific point of view, it's true because their gods are non-corporeal, non-linear beings that perceive time all at once. So all the prophecies they send and things like that are true. They're just interpreted in different ways. And the Bajoran gods do exist because Cisco directly interacts with them periodically. So that's fine. That's science fiction and religion. You can see how the religion was formed from it, but you can also see the scientific basis of that at the same time. So that really works. And Battlestar Galactica did that as well. They did a really good job of the religion and the coincidences that came as a result of that religion playing into their... They didn't really lean hard into sci-fi in terms of explaining how FTL worked and things in that show, but the religion was a big part of that as well, and it largely worked in terms of a framework for storytelling. I prefer that. I actually much prefer that side of things. I didn't really enjoy the ending of Battlestar Galactica, though, especially with that religious part, but mostly for it. I prefer that. And if you bring it back to the MCU, I liked when Captain America referred to God, that he was religious. I liked Daredevil in the network shows, and I hope it carries on. I fear that it won't, but I hope it carries on in the Netflix shows. The Daredevil was Catholic. Yeah, the Catholic guilt. It's part of who he is. As you say, it gives you plot. It gives you ways of dealing with the emotional consequence of life. I really don't need it to provide mystery. You can bring it up and say, why didn't God stop Thanos? You could bring that up. You could have somebody go through that. But I don't even need that. I just like to see, well, religion is something that characters have. And it doesn't need to be brought into the foreground to be meaningful at all. So, yeah, the Battlestar Galactica one is preferable. I have nothing against the Bajoran situation. It was perfectly reasonable. I don't think you even need to have that. You just have religion as religion. People still need it. It doesn't matter how good your science is. At some point, you're still stuck with why are we here and what happens after death. Sorry, you can't get those. Well, I'm saying that. 
give us a millennium and maybe we will. <laughs> but at the moment, as no matter how good our science is, in the future of the MCU, the science those characters have, there are still unanswerable questions that just don't need to manifest. And interestingly, in this show, they answered the whole after-death thing to some degree. In the Asgard arc at the end of season one, Cap gets stuck in this limbo place where he sees the ghosts of his soldiers, although it turns out it's a manipulation. He ends up breaking out of it because he says, I know, Jack Fury would never talk like that, etc. So he finds out that he's being manipulated. But it's the sort of keeper of the dead that's doing that to him. So again, it's in there. Thor in this is very much more of a fantasy god than he is just an advanced alien in the MCU as well. That's a dangerous path for me, though, that I think the MCU needs to always tread carefully on because trying to bring everything together is a worthy mission, but a doomed one. Because at some point you have to deal with what they did in Moon Knight. Yeah, we saw that they failed to make that consistent. You had a TV show that had gods feature prominently and you had a film that literally had a villain that was killing gods and you made no connection between the two. Yeah, it's just too difficult, I think, to weave everything together. When I was trying to work out what a dimension was after watching Loki, I ended up in this rabbit hole of getting into what the comics have used for their mythology. And they do manage to give us God, capital G. They've also got some gods, plural, with the capital G. And then you've got minor gods, and you've got demigods, and you've got powerful creatures. And they've put them all in a list. And they've made it clear to say that one is more powerful than the other is more powerful than the other. But even reading that, you're still stuck with, yeah, but hang on a minute, afterlives, who gets to control what is science, what's not? And it never adds up, especially when you start bringing dimensions. And it's someone's spirit gets to go to another dimension. So it's not really a heaven per se. So hang on a minute, who set that up where we get to cross dimensions? But hang on, they can cross dimensions. Does that mean you're technically dying if you just visit? And it's just an argument you can't win. I think they'd actually be better off if they didn't try and bring these things together because even having right hang on a minute so thor's a god yeah he's a god he's totally a god so he is in the mythology which means he can access the heaven of his universe the valhalla of his universe no not really because the valhalla is the thing that comes after him right hang on a minute so what you're saying is there's then two levels of godhood here. Oh, but one of them's not really godhood. And one of them is an afterlife and the other one's not. Okay, hang on. So what about this Natalie Portman character that's just picked up a weapon and started twatting people with it? She gets to go to this heaven, but she didn't believe in that. She's been suckered in there by what force? Oh, no, it's because that she totally loved Thor and used the hammer. And that undid years of belief. And as soon as you go into this rabbit hole, you're doomed. It's just a black hole. I really think they'd be better off just not doing it at all. And you would assume that Jane Foster is atheist in that scenario as well, because she's a scientist, and scientists normally are. They don't really go into her religion, to be fair. She never explicitly states that I'm not religious, so she could be religious. At no point, though, did I see her enacting any old Norse rituals. No. So it doesn't matter what religion she is, she certainly wasn't old Scandinavian at all. In the context of this show, Thor is a magical being from another realm. Which is fine. Not necessarily a god, it's just that he was seen as one when he visited Earth. Keep it simple, that's nice. Keep it simple, leave it there, that's all it needs to be, moving on. Yeah, it's fine. And the Battlestar Galactica example in terms of how you use religion to inform plot, there's a great episode, it's in season one, where it looks like Baltar is about to be rumbled. And obviously he's hallucinating 
at that point, or you don't know if he's hallucinating. That's the point. You don't know if he is, yeah. Yeah, he speaks to the Cylon woman throughout the season, played by Trisha Helfer, number six, and she says, you'll get out of this if you accept God. If you embrace God, you'll get out of this. And he does, and at the end of the episode, they find out the photographs are fake. And the question you're left with is, what are they going to find that anyway? Or is it because he embraced God? And that's brilliant. That is the normal problems of the universe that humans can't solve. Yeah. When they then explain it in the final episode, I was just like, oh, why did you do that? (laughs) And both are believable as well, under certain conditions. Yeah. Because you can even say that he was clever enough that some part of his subconscious put it together. I don't know if I believe in this, but you could say that part of his subconscious was able to work out that it would have been discovered anyway. He just hadn't put it together because he couldn't Sherlock it well enough. I say, I don't know that I believe in that, but you could make that argument. Yeah. But anyway, back to this. You've got the religious thing. Although this episode introduces Super Scrolls as well. They have to fight a Super Scroll to get out of it, which is a problem that you telegraphed earlier. Yeah, I got totally lost here. So now they've gone off the rails for me. Because by the time I get to that point, I cannot work out what the ground rules are. And I can't work out what I should be able to work out. I loved it when Fury said, I can work out this because, great. I use the rules that I know. A scroll will behave incorrectly. And I've seen that with Captain America. It might not necessarily reveal it by now, but looking back on it, you know that he's seen these things and he's worked it out. So he knows what the rules are and he knows he can use them and our plot is based on that. Now, I agree a character can be wrong. That is fine. I'm nothing against Fury working something out and then going, oops, what an idiot, never mind, because it's an evolution of knowledge. Presumably there's something that gives him inspiration to rethink his strategy. Totally cool. But at this point, I'm now asked to somehow accept that I will see a scroll And I don't know if they will have superpowers or not. I can't work out whether this person is a real person, a scroll or a super scroll by anything that you give me on camera, because there are no rules to work by. And if somebody defeats somebody in combat without using powers, oh no, that was a normal scroll. Okay. But then they're fighting next to a super scroll. Hang on a minute. Why on earth would the queen send half a group of people together to take on a mission where half of them are scrolls and half are super scrolls. And randomly the super scrolls are placed around. And you're thinking, no, everything you, the scroll queen, have done so far has been really clever. You have put people into positions. You've manipulated people. You've even manipulated Fury after he's done something clever. You've out-clevered the clever guy. That's amazing. I love to see that. Show me it. Show me them being clever enough to outmaneuver even the spy. But then from here on in, a scroll could be a normal scroll, a super scroll. And it seems to be somewhat randomly placed based on what the plot needs. So you can't even have Captain America defeats the Hulk anymore. And you know something because of it, because it does seem to be that even an individual scroll character, at one point they behave like a normal scroll. And at one point they behave like a super scroll because at uh, one point, for example, poor old Wasp. I hate how this show tackles Wasp. She's a really cute girl, but I also mean that in a bad way because that's what she is left to be, a cute girl. But at one point, her little zappy powers can flatten anything. And at other points, she zaps somebody in the face and they just go, what are you doing? Why are you hit me with that light show? That was rubbish. And the whole power levels just get used completely randomly based on what the plot needs. And this is that point for me where it goes horribly wrong because the payoff is in episode 12 where the fight is utterly meaningless 
because I don't know what any of the rules and the stakes are. And it's such a shame, I think, to have such an excellent setup and then lose it to that. I would say that episode 11 as well is a bit pointless because you have the two groups of Avengers that look identical fighting that's functionally seem identical in terms of power sets. Oh, sorry. I meant 11, but probably 12 as well. 12 has super scrolls and they look like twisted versions of heroes and villains. Yeah, I meant 11. The big payoff is in 11 where it's almost like a civil war. I should have said 11. 11 breaks the logic that I was trying to work with a bit and I'm bringing some of that from the comics as well. So in the comics, the scrolls had to do something to one of their own to power them up. They were usually powered up by some generator that transmits the signal that allows them to have powers. The first Super scroll was in Fantastic Four, which is what they nod to in, in Episode Ten, where that scroll has the powers of the Fantastic Four. Yeah, they do. But I can't remember if they can still transform when they have the powers. I feel like it might just be one or the other. When they're a Super scroll, they can't shapeshift. As in, they can't one-to-one impersonate someone. Obviously, he still shapeshifts and he stretches and whatever else. In the comics, you mean? Because in yeah. this, there's no rule on this at all. No, but that would be a good distinction to make. We can't make too many super scrolls so we have to ration them and we lose the ability to impersonate other people when we make them then you have a rule set that you can work with yeah okay limitation cool so when we need muscle we send in a super scroll when we need finesse we'll send in our infiltration guys a normal scroll spy yeah yeah and that logic seems to hold water in episode 10 because you have the scrolls that come in disguised as the avengers where cap can knock out the hulk absolutely yeah that's fine but then episode 11 as you say breaks it because you have them just liberally using the Avengers' powers. They don't establish the source of the Wasp's powers in this show, as in how she gets her wings and her stingers. I don't think they're tech-based like they are in the films. Other ones you can get around pretty easily. Iron Man, they get the blueprints of the suit, they make another one, fine. Same with Black Panther. You just make a suit and you can emulate the strength in some way. Thor, you can do an approximation of his hammer and his abilities. Yeah. But again, you would think that Thor would have to be a super scroll because he flies and is strong and stuff like that. Just the hammer is a mechanical thing that they then break. Yes. That's a good way to find out if Thor's a scroll, actually. I'm just going to try and lift this hammer. And if I can, then, well, you're a scroll. That's true, yeah. I wouldn't even mind did that, actually, as a plot point. If Fury just turns up and goes, oh, that's interesting, and walks away. That would have something. Could just make it really heavy, I suppose. Does this episode then, episode 11, suffer from the fact that, oh, 10-year-old boys are watching this, therefore it must be a massive punch-up, and they just got lost in needing to give us a punch-up? Because I'm not against that. I'm not against there being a fight. But did somebody just say, as long as we put in a punch-up, it's fine? Because I would have preferred them to have used the intelligence they created in the previous episodes to create a clever point where people are during the middle of the combat trying to work out which of those two Hawkeyes do I need to go for and you have to work something out based on how they maneuver or what arrows they use or what they don't have is it there's just that laziness oh the boys will be happy because there's a punch up could be and I say boys for another thing we should bring up you could essentially ditch episode 11 largely I don't think it really adds too much to the overall context of the story no, it gives you your combat payoff, which, as I say, in a boys' cartoon, I am expecting to see that fight payoff, but it, it just feels like somebody just gave up at that point, which is a shame. Well, you get a better version of that in episode 12 anyway. Ah, true. But see, in episode 12, though, because they're all in their obviously super scroll form, you don't have that problem to work out. Nobody has to work anything out. To me, episode 12 is not the payoff, which is a shame because it's supposed to be because it's the last episode before an epilogue. 
So it should be the big thing. But because it's just a normal punch-up with nothing needing to be worked out, oh, and by the way, the queen goes nuts when her prophecy isn't fulfilled, it's just a reminder that she's a nutter. 12 is a loss. Episode 11 or 12 should have had, I think, the big fight with all of the payoff. Despite the speed we go through plot in a cartoon like this, maybe it should have been one episode shorter. don't know, actually. Or maybe one more episode where they Sherlock who's who. And then episode 12 is your big punch-up. At least episode 12 feels connected, regardless of what you might think of the climactic action beat that doesn't really support the whole secret invasion notion because it just devolves into a big punch-up, as you say. I think a lot of animated shows are guilty of that because young kids are watching and they want the light show. We can't have an episode where action doesn't happen. So we need people to fight and we need it to be exciting. Spectacular Spider-Man always delivered that in really interesting ways because every episode is built around here's a villain that he has to fight or here's a returning villain that he has to fight. So it is essentially built around how is he going to defeat this villain? That's the problem that he needs to solve. Well, yeah, I'm okay with that. I don't think that's an issue. I don't mind there being an action fight scene in it. It's just that you had such an excellent opportunity for a which Cylon do I shoot? Which Spider-Man is real? in one of these and instead it's just a light show you could have a clever interesting fight because one of the biggest problems must be when you're creating two series of fight club as you said we're going to have to have this how do you make sure every fight is so unique that it's worth watching and the kids just don't get bored because they've seen it already i mean in the old days people used to reuse footage (laughs) make it easier still in the modern day uh, as well you can see a lot of reused footage and things still it's a budget thing oh i totally get that but i assure the people who created the old he-man series i did notice when that rocket sled came by and fired its double lasers <laughs> in every single episode. It didn't escape me. Yeah, of course. Episode 11 is a weird anomaly for me as well, and the only bit about it that feels connected is the start where there's that scroll shuttle that's coming in for a landing, because if you've just watched episode 10, you're thinking, oh, cool, Cap's back. Okay, we're going to get something about him having to convince people he's the real one. There's already doubt there and stuff like that. So that's an interesting episode. The real Cap's there. The fake Cap's there. Yeah. They have to figure out what's going on here. One of them has to convince the Avengers that he's the real one. Sure, why not? Sherlock episode, absolutely. But instead, what you have is this shuttle is filled with fake Avengers, which doesn't work because you know that the only Avenger that's been replaced is Cap. And you know that because he's pretending he's the real one to everybody. But even that's confusing because when you think about who's got powers and who doesn't, and who's actively manipulating people and who isn't. Where's the real Sue Storm? Why wasn't she needing to be rescued? I mean, if you take everybody's got powers, there were loads of people got copied. And I can totally believe that Black Panther, they just said, right, here's a costume, get in it. That's fine. They don't need to have captured these people. Well, actually, it's not the costume. It's because, right, we know Black Panther's in Wakanda. He came back. That's your lie. You got on a plane and you came back. Brilliant. I can handle that. Easy spy work. But all of the other people needed to have been removed because they would have turned up. So yeah, where was Sue Storm? Where was all these other people? They weren't on that ship. So again, the rules are, so the only people that have been replaced are the ones that Cat found. If not, we got a problem. We've got to go and find the other ship that is outside Jupiter, not Saturn, that's got everybody else on it. Oops, (laughs) we forgot to rescue them, which is a shame. Every rule is thrown out the window for this one. Yeah, because Sue Storm hadn't been found at that point. She was still happily sitting within the Fantastic Four, undetected. They make a plot point out of that in the following episode where she 
plants a bomb or something in the Baxter building. Yeah, keep out of the whole scroll plan. So it must have been replaced. Yeah, it's fine that they don't come back or they don't bring other scrolls to pretend that they're the real ones or whatever in that one because you're okay with it or I'm okay with the fact that these people are still undercover, most of them. But what they're basically trying to do is they're trying to convince Carol that the entire group of Avengers have been replaced. The whole team have been replaced. And Stark gives a story about, we just came back from Asgard and then this happened. And Thor held out the longest, but eventually even he couldn't deal with them. And that's what's happened here. And the whole time, certainly when I was watching, I was just sitting thinking, this is utter garbage. I don't believe any of this. You're not convincing me as the audience. So what are you doing? You make an episode where they're trying to convince Carol, but that's a waste of time because we're not following her perspective because we know more than she does. Yeah, it's a shame. As I say, especially because everything else has been so well plotted. Even going back as to lay the seed of it in the previous season, it's just crazy the amount of thought that has gone into some of that. Right, let's cleverly think out what we're going to do here. Maybe it was that write yourself into a corner problem, I don't know. But yeah, it's a massive shame. And it just exists to give you a mirror match. Every Avenger fights themselves. It does, yeah. Makes no sense either. Isn't even necessarily very clever way of dealing with it so yeah Yeah. let's swap partners because we could have someone that's better at fighting someone else and even to make it just a little bit more interesting so you're not just seeing a bunch of arrows flying everywhere okay somebody fired some more arrows cool yeah so there's really nothing to that episode other than the fact that carol is led along this path of deceit until she eventually learns the truth and she doesn't work it out it's just that the scrolls end up damaged enough so that they tip their hand and that's it so you see Thor falling out of the sky with the broken hammer, or Skrull Thor falling out of the sky with a broken hammer, and then he's in that pit on the ground, and I think it's T'Challa drags his Skrull counterpart into the hole as well. And then from there, it's just nonsense. It's just, let's mop this up now. And then you get to episode 12, which is Secret Invasion, which is where the Skrulls enact their plan. And after everything being so calculated and deliberate, they just throw everything in, and there's no real finesse to it anymore. No. Which is just bizarre. It felt like a strange continuation of the story they weren't telling. It's jagged, that's the thing. 10 going into 11, like you say, missing out an obvious plot where somebody then has to persuade their friends that they're real, they can do some deduction, they can bring fury in and say, right, you're a spy, you work it out, we can't do it. And then they can have lots of back and forward with that. And then episode 11 then goes into 12, and again, it's jagged. Why are these two things connected? What part of the plan was to just go nuts? Yeah, it's weird. Then you have a thing that shouldn't work in episode 12 as well, where Scroll Cap addresses the world and says, Hi, I'm Captain America. You all trust me. Well, the Scrolls, they're here to help us. And everyone seems to believe that for the moment. And then when it's revealed to be the obvious lie that it is, they suddenly hate Captain America publicly anyway, even though they understand he was replaced, even though that comes out. I believe that because we live in a world where people just ignore objective truth and continue on in their erroneous views. Plus the people that were yelling, you can imagine that they're the ones that weren't following things very closely in the first place. Oh, somebody saved the world. Oh, is it that guy in blue? Cool, fine. I don't really care. I've got other things to do. There's enough people in the world that could make that believable, but it's not earned because you needed to see the Captain America for two episodes, not just one speech, for two episodes trying to persuade the public of something. I wondered about shortening it earlier, but actually maybe it didn't need shortening. Some of the plot lines needed extending and removing some of the other stuff. And even then, if you only want to use the available episodes, you ditch episode 11 and replace it with that. Yeah, cool, fine. And then your fight at the end is when... Mirror match, Captain America thing. The important thing about episode 12 is to remember that actually the scroll cream was wrong, that actually she had some secret uber scrolls that had infiltrated the Avengers all along. Because 
Thor and Iron Man are clearly scrolls when they wipe out the planet's satellites and presumably bring the entire satellite network back under Tony Scroll's control. <laughs> that was the actual plan all along, because they get to win. They get to dominate the Earth that yeah. way. It's never mentioned on camera, of course, but it clearly has to be, because why else would you wipe out the world's satellite? <laughs> well, they established that. We've installed this thing that can then wipe out all of humanity in seconds or whatever it is. Oh, you see, that was just a clever lie, just a subterfuge. That was never actually true. That was just how they managed to persuade the humans to let the scrolls destroy the satellite network it was a double double plan it was triple buff <laughs> but instead it was just thor take out all of our satellites cripple our global communications <laughs> we're screwed yeah <laughs> we're absolutely screwed yeah everything that we do relying on satellites at this moment in time and can you imagine just thor goes and Blast them all. Tony Stark presumably re-establishes them all, but then he rules the world. So, yeah, brilliant. Good move. Well, there's an episode later on where he does rule the world. He's manipulated by Kilgrave, or as he's known in this show, the Purple Man. And he does rule the world. So, prophetic, I suppose. Fair enough. He enabled himself to be manipulated in a different way. But yeah, the nuance has gone from that episode, certainly. There's nothing really to it. They all converge in Washington and fight for a bit. Which is so weird, because again, when you get to 13... You're dealing with some quite subtle stuff again. It's just there's this blip in the middle. Very strange. Yeah. And the thing is, the whole prophecy thing, it could have been good if they explained what it was and what made the Queen so adamant that it was to come true. And it seemed like she was about to explain herself, explain why she was so convinced. And then Carol Danvers just shoots her and then nothing else is said after that. Yeah, well, that's because she had to shoot her because there was nothing for the plot force to bring up. There was actually nothing there. Yeah. I mean, they could have been like, okay, here's why I thought this prophecy was going to come true and here's everything. But she doesn't. She just says, but what about this prophecy? And it's like, yeah, what about it? You were just wrong. It just proves that it was religion for the sake of pointing out that cultists are evil. I think it just adds another nail to that coffin. Yeah. And the scrolls wanted Earth so much, but you see a planet that they're operating from. What's wrong with that one? Yeah. They were poorly motivated throughout the whole thing, which is a shame given how clever they were. And then the way it's wrapped up is, oh, we've stuffed them in a prison, we'll deal with them later. Okay. <laughs> that never goes wrong. There's never any escapes, no. Okay, you could do that, I suppose. If you shrunk down their ships and put them in safe storage as well so they can just steal them too. Yeah, I guess so. It's a bit weird. So I didn't get a lot out of 12, other than some of the action stuff was reasonably cool. You had the bit where Skrull Cap and Real Cap were fighting, where it had that, I have all your strength and all your memories and all that stuff. You could have got something a bit existential out of that. I didn't enjoy that bit. It fitted into the let's abuse religion to me because at the end of it, the big speech... The one thing you cannot copy is our spirit. No, he can. He said he copied your emotions. He's definitely got your spirit. What is spirit here? It's just that good old American, we've got gumption, we'll get through it. It's poor. It's not meaningful. It doesn't build on anything. Well, I suppose I did see his spirit when he saved Viper and he was a hero after all. But again, the whole point is if you copy their emotions and everything, then they could behave like that. If they're a spy and a good spy, then they could copy that behavior they make mistakes mostly because they have to break character in order to fulfill their plan captain america has to not behave like captain america in order to get the hulk tied up so he breaks character explicitly in order to achieve a goal a mission point and that's fine you're gonna have to do that but if otherwise then 
they are perfectly capable of staying on target, then this whole idea of, no, you've not copied me at all, it's weak. It's just copying something from an old 80s script where the person who's been clearly beaten into the ground, despite the blood and the bruises, manages to stand up again. And that's fine in a martial arts film because they are blatantly using their willpower to stand up. It makes sense there, but if you take it out of context and just chuck it in here, good old American how-do, it's weak. It means nothing. The speech that he gives in, I think it's a couple of speeches in episode 13, are actually much more meaningful. And Cap savagely beats the scroll as well, just to prove how much better he is. <laughs> we can all break character when we need to. Yeah, the plot force has that. One thing they, I suppose, could have done, but there's maybe not time for it, and it's maybe a bit cliche as well. You have this scroll that's living as someone on Earth, with all their memories and maybe emotions, and start questioning what they're doing because they start to empathize with their targets. And I'm starting to understand what this guy's all about. I'm starting to agree. I'm starting to question the mission here. Well, presumably, something like that, but not necessarily exactly that, is what's going to give you your two different sects. I can't even think what the right word is your two groups of scrolls. Factions. Factions that's coming up in TV show. We're going to see some of them have sided with humans and some of them sided against them and there has to be a reason why that could be your reason it doesn't need to be there's plenty of other reasons but you're right there's definitely plot there and it's possible that a tv show upcoming is going to use that to better advantage they haven't really established in the mcu that the scrolls take any memories or in fact they don't seem to at all it's just a cosmetic change they could introduce more stuff they could. later. There's got the whole TV series to do it. It's not like the scrolls are particularly well fleshed out at the moment. So there's room. The example I'm thinking of is in Spider-Man Far From Home where you have Talos who's Fury for that whole film. So Fury and Maria Hill are a scroll that whole film. When you know that, you can see little shifts in the behaviour from the norm. It's things like Maria Hill sassies Fury more than she does in any previous appearance. It's something you won't outwardly notice necessarily the first time you watch it, but once the shapeshift happens, you're like, oh, okay. I can believe that they weren't themselves this whole time. So it's just that he does an acceptable but also not great approximation of Nick Fury. I don't know that I trust that it's been in the writing, actually. If it is, then fantastic. But I'm more thinking that that's going to be due to a change of writers, whereby somebody's written on a page. This character occasionally ribs the other character and, and maybe plays a bit light of certain things. And how one writer brings that to the page is going to be different to the other. Maybe, yeah. Now, it's possible that they are as cleverly written as you think, but I've seen Phase 4, and if there's one thing that Phase 4 is not, it's clever. It's got great light shows in it. For all that I hate Multiverse of Madness, I will acknowledge that was an awesome fireworks display but one thing that multiverse of madness is clearly not it's cleverly thought out so i don't currently believe it if we see evidence of that later fine but i think that's yet to be proven well far from home was a phase three film all right okay well in that case maybe that's enough to prove it i suspect in the tv show you'll have the scrolls replacing politicians and things rather than superheroes so they'll just be people effectively as opposed to trying to replicate a superhero which they did here the thing about cap is i think in this cartoon he has some powers they're not very strong powers but he has them and in the mcu he definitely has powers in the comics he doesn't well i don't know if he does now i don't know if they've retconned that to some degree but certainly originally all the super soldier serum did was make him a physically perfect specimen. A lot of early Avengers stories were about him struggling to keep up or frightened that he wouldn't be able to keep up because he's not a superhero. He's just as good as it can get for a person. So he's he's always training. He's always trying to keep himself in shape. He's always 
working to maintain that because he's worried that he's going to fall behind all the really powerful people around him. That's actually quite interesting. It's something that is impossible in this cartoon, though, because the rule of cool takes over too much. I have to acknowledge that the rule of cool does have some value. I don't want to try and drop it completely, but when the rule of cool is overdone like any tool it is misused and whether calf has powers or not is irrelevant for this particular cartoon because in other episodes as i say you see with poor wasp sometimes she can knock over a frost giant with a single blast and then at other points the blast does nothing at all it just bounces off people cap is the same he can knock over a villain when it's the right time in the plot for him to do so and he will be underpowered when it's the right time to do so. Massive shame, but yeah. But the thing is, it almost makes him the perfect candidate to be replaced if he doesn't have any enhanced abilities, because all the scroll that's replacing him has to do is train. It should do that, but because the power levels are completely variable, and because the scrolls and the super scrolls are interlinked and mixed in in odd ways that you can't work out, that that you've just given me is almost like a conceit that doesn't actually get used. It looks good on paper, but I never see that in this particular cartoon, I don't think. And you can extrapolate it with the replacement of Mockingbird versus Hawkeye. She might be easier to duplicate because she isn't as good a shot as he is with a bow and arrow. And that's very difficult to replicate. It should be that way, but you'll never see it because people will hit a target when the plot needs them to. Their ability will never be in question. Yeah, so again, if you have more time, you potentially have a scroll Hawkeye situation where they rumble him because he misses. Yeah, absolutely fine. Love that. Would have worked really well. But they didn't. It's just that he's the most likely candidate. And you could almost have Fury use that as an interrogation technique. If you're the real Hawkeye, hit this target. It's a mile away. That's exactly what he uses. That's exactly what he uses with Fury. That's why episode seven is so great, because he uses exactly that methodology, but then it goes away. But he doesn't use it with Hawkeye. No, that's what I mean. After episode seven, you never see it again, which is a big shame. Yeah, he uses it with Stark, which is... Fine, and it works for Stark. And let's try and awaken the flaws in his personality that we know he has. And if it proven to work, why not use it again? Why not get Fury? If Fury's the clever one who can work this stuff out, bring him on. It'd be really cool, yeah, just have this episode where he interrogates each of the Avengers. There's your episode 11. Yeah. That'd be really cool. Hawkeye, we've brought you into this practice range. If you hit the bullseye on every one of these targets, then I'll be a bit more secure with trusting you. That's not to say a scroll couldn't learn to do that, but when you have nothing, that's kind of all you have to play with in terms of trying to figure it out. They don't talk about it, but I'm guessing they replicate DNA and blood and all this stuff so you can just do a blood test. Well, yeah, that would have undermined the cleverness of the plotting. Because the only way they can be detected is because Doctor Doom figures it out. Which is a bit of a left-field appearance because Stark can't figure it out. Doom shows up and says, here's a detector, but I'm leaving now. And that's essentially it for him. Yeah, Doom's appearance is not needed. It's quite fun, though, because he's got the arrogance that you want him to have. So I quite liked his appearance for seeing him, but it's not necessary at all, no. Doom and Stark are a good pairing as well. There's kind of parallels you can draw between them that are quite fun to explore. It's kind of weird to see it as well, though, because... I think I know why he's there, is to give Tony someone to talk to. But the thing is, Tony's the one character who doesn't need someone to talk to because he carries Jarvis around with him. <laughs> if a writer said to me, oh, this is what we needed, I think, no, he didn't. You might have needed that for Thor, but not for Tony. So, yeah, it's kind of fun and quirky, but totally unnecessary. This show started as the MCU was still forming, so it was well underway before the Avengers came out. And you can see things they took from the MCU as part of their setup. So Jarvis with Iron Man, for example, as an AI. And even the actor they hired to voice Iron Man 
sounds vaguely like Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, it does. If you listen to the actor who plays him, he just sounds like that. But I suspect that's a big part of the reason that they cast him. They got a voice double. Yeah, why not? Yeah, so you can see the MCU influence in there, but it also leans more into the comics later on once they've got that basis. And even with Thor, they didn't copy the MCU Thor at all. They just leaned straight into fantasy with him. Oh, the whole two seasons are much more comic book. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a choice they made. But they drew people in with a familiar, which I thought was interesting early on, as in, okay, you've seen some of these films. Here's things that you'll recognise from these films. That's intelligent setup and it's sort of media literacy in a way, isn't it? Because it's, we know you're watching these things. We want you to watch this because you've been watching those things and here's things that will feel familiar. So anything else on episode 12 or are we okay with the fact that it's just whatever? No, let's leave it in the dirt where it belongs. Moving on. Okay. So episode 13, which is, as you said, an epilogue, along came a spider. It has Spider-Man in it, which is another reason I chose to put it on the list because I like Spider-Man. Interesting piece of trivia about this episode is that Drake Bell is the voice of Peter Parker slash Spider-Man in this episode because the Ultimate Spider-Man cartoon was coming out. Well, it was announced and he was cast in that show. But Josh Keaton recorded all of the lines that Peter Parker would say in this episode and they replaced them and brought in Drake Bell to redo them. And there is one line, I forget which one it is, but there is one line that is still the Josh Keaton one. He accidentally left it in. So he changed his voice for one line. I didn't notice, but fair enough. It would be one of those things. I'd have to find it and then point it out to you if you notice, because it's not prominent. It's not that it's an entire scene. He's Josh Keaton. It's literally a few words. So it's a bit of a shame. I think they wanted to make Spectacular Spider-Man set in the same reality as this, and it just didn't work out that way. So that's why they replaced them with the guy who will be voicing Spider-Man after this point, because Spectacular had been cancelled by this point. Obviously, this would have been in production way earlier, just because of the way these things work and you have jk simmons voicing j jonas jameson and he would do it in ultimate spider-man as well and obviously they played him in live action so there's a couple of things you could quite easily see this version of spider-man as being a slightly older version of the spectacular one yeah you could you don't necessarily get enough to connect but it certainly didn't do anything to break the connection well the ultimate spider-man version is nothing like this version at all when they commissioned ultimate spider-man after the rights reverted that's a show where he's under the mentorship of Nick Fury, he runs a team of young superheroes that includes a young Luke Cage and Iron Fist and so on. And it's more comedically focused. It's a bit like Family Guy. There's cutaway gags. It's actually okay. I quite like Ultimate Spider-Man as a show, but okay. it's no patch on Spectacular. So again, this is much more in line with the portrayal of him in Spectacular Spider-Man. In Spectacular, I think he was 15 Whereas in this, he's 17. I think Stark makes fun of him for being young. Yeah, but they just say that. You don't know that he's 17. He doesn't do anything specifically 17. He does say, I'm 17. Yeah, they tell you. It's an exposition point. I can't link the two characters because I haven't seen him behaving like a 17-year-old. Yeah, it's a nice little link, but they'd need to do more to really connect it. Yeah, they don't explicitly connect it. And in the spectacular Spider-Man show, there's no indication that any other superheroes exist as well. So it's, it's set in its own little bubble universe. Not in the mad universe that Ian is in. <laughs> Just totally insane. Yeah, and when I interviewed the showrunner of Spectacular Spider-Man, he said his idea was that it was early in the Marvel Universe, just like Spider-Man was when he was established in the comics. There was hardly anybody around at the time. The Fantastic Four are off somewhere. Tony Stark hasn't gone to the cave yet. The Hulk hasn't been in the accident, etc. So it's all oh, these people are out there. They just haven't emerged yet. So I guess if you give it a couple of years... 
maybe they have, but again, it's a busy couple of years and it's a drastically different world. But it was good having him in the show and I do think Drake Bell is a decent voice for Spider-Man as well. I'm sort of biased towards Josh Keaton because I think he's great in the role, but Drake Bell's fine for the most part. And I think Spider-Man's used really well here. It's a great way to link to what Cap is dealing with because he's out of sorts with the public. They don't like him. They don't trust him anymore. And that's what Spider-Man deals with every day. Everybody hates him for some reason. Well, they hate him because of the newspapers. It's crafted that way. But yeah, it's a nice thing. You've got two people in the same boat. One of them is young and one of them is experienced and has a way to deal with it that actually works. And it's a return to form for me because not only does Cap tell you what his philosophy is, but he actively lives it throughout the episode. It's one of those ones where at the end you get a pretty standard and the civilians join in with the charge and fight the bad guys because they've been won over in the end. It's not really a tearjerker for me because you were kind of expecting it, but only because I've been jaded on the times I've seen it before. So it's not bad. It's in the right place. But despite that, I think more powerful is you get a better speech from Cap where he's explaining his ideology. But it's even more powerful because he refuses to talk to the reporter. He actively makes sure that people judge him by his actions. And he doesn't even entertain the thought of trying to persuade people with words because it says, no, your actions are going to define you. So it is nicely done. It's a nice juxtaposition of the two of them together in the same boat, but one of them has the answer and the other one doesn't. He knows that nothing he'll say will change anyone's mind whether it be reporting a newspaper or he's just talking to someone if someone is dead set on him being a traitor then he's not going to be able to say any magic words that will suddenly alter that perception so yeah he does have to win them back by just being a hero again which is fine but i love how he encourages spider-man by saying i've been watching you i know who you are i know that you help people i know that you never ask for reward for praise for even thanks and he recognises that Spider-Man's all about doing the right thing doesn't matter what obstacle is in his way he'll still do it they pick that up later but it's well we're doing the right thing because it's the right thing we're not doing it for any other reason you get your payoff as well he says the civilians that you saved will know don't worry about what the newspaper says is implied because the people that know are the ones that are important it's almost the same as don't worry about what's being said on the internet don't worry about these slanging matches the people that need to know are the ones that do know you can still have an angry mob that does a lot of damage so it's not quite that simple but still it works in the episode and it's a nice lesson to learn i miss some of the 80s cartoons for them trying to teach a moral lesson i don't think all cartoons have to be that way but i just like to see it when it's there that's all yeah and when it fits in with the story they're trying to tell as well where it's not shoehorned in it makes sense for those characters to have those sorts of conversations and have those sorts of challenges yeah when i get an older character speaking to a younger character especially someone who's cap whose whole idea is trying to help people and one of his superpowers is his speech writing <laughs> ability then it's definitely the right person i don't want it from hawkeye i certainly don't want it from the hulk but yeah from cap i expect and enjoy it yeah it's the the people you save know the truth you know the truth and i know the truth nothing else matters we'll just go on to the next thing and hope that one day people will see us for what we actually are instead of what we're being painted as so you can hope for and it's a good message for young viewers as well if you do the right thing that's worthwhile by itself yeah it's nice to see it and of course you get peter parker acting like a young kid and he's a bit starstruck by cap when he first meets him and things like that it's a nice little touch there he's just believably a fan yeah he's got his moments of awkwardness to be fair actually that's what makes him believably 17 i was wrong earlier i will actually say that he is delivered as a 17 year old i still don't know that i can 
connect him to Spectacular well enough from one episode. But I will acknowledge that he's a well-done Spider-Man and he is young. And actually, to be fair, he needs to be because otherwise the dynamic doesn't work. So it's good that they give it to you because otherwise the older man giving the younger one some advice wouldn't be quite so meaningful. And obviously in the MCU, they drew the connection between Peter and Stark, whereas in this, it's Cap that helps him figure things out. Both are valid. It works in the MCU because they both have that science tech angle and they're still an older man advising Iron Man, especially because the whole being a superhero thing is something we have seen on screen Tony Stark learning. So it works for me perfectly well. Yeah, and him trying to impart that to someone else. It's something he's not prepared for as such. It's something he's not very good at because he's never really been in that space of passing on knowledge. And I could be make it more interesting because of that. But both of them work. Neither's better or worse. Both of them work. Yeah. Whereas Cap, as you say, is practiced at making speeches and things. He's all about trying to inspire people. Whenever someone comes along, he's going to try and inspire them. It's just the way he is. Which is why he's better in this episode than in previous episodes. Because in 7 and 13, he gets to be a hero and he gets to inspire people. I don't think I see that in any of the other episodes, no matter what is written in episode 12. I don't see it. I like that he's no nonsense in the episode as well. You get the scene where the tunnel they're in is about to collapse and he says, right, we need to go. There's an access panel every mile or so. We can make our way there. And the guy says, why would we go with you? And he's like, you can stay here if you want. It's probably going to fall on your head, so I wouldn't recommend it. He's not going to drag anybody, but it's just the way he's, this is what I'm going to do. And anybody that wants to follow can. Sure, yeah. Less inspiration, more practicality, but yeah, he was born in the war, so fair play. And then you've got Spider-Man with his light and his spider sense, which helps them get through it. And that's a good strategic thing from Cap, because he recognises that he has those abilities and makes use of them. Yeah, again, wartime commander, yeah, works well. Something that shows never does, actually, is put Cap in the leadership position on the Avengers. It's always Stark that's in charge. The only time that Cap is leading them is when it's... A scroll. Yeah, that's one of my favourite parts of the Avengers film, actually, where Iron Man turns to Cap and says, you know what's going on in this situation, all yours. It's just an acknowledgement of ability. It's a nice thing to see. Small moment, but powerful. Yeah, and they do a similar thing in the sequel where he says, actually, he's in charge, I just pay for everything. Yeah, that's quite Stark. It's good there, yeah, but they never put him in. I think there's an episode where him and Stark are sparring and Stark says, why don't you lead the Avengers? And then they just don't do it. Maybe it was something they wanted to do in season three, but they never got around to it. Because they never made a season three. Something they were maybe just trying to set up a bit. The finale ends up being the shoehorned thing about Stark being worried about the Avengers legacy or how they'll be remembered. And then Galactus invades and they have to save the world. And then at the end, Cap says something like, you're worried about the Avengers legacy. Here it gets you some kind of a button on the show. I guess if you're stuck for time, it's the best you can do. Writers need to say goodbye, I think, and I get that because you've been personally connected to these things. It does mean something to you, but find it more powerful when you just step away and let the thing be itself. Yeah. Spider-Man does turn up two more times in this show. There's the new Avengers episode a few episodes after this where Kang attacks again and essentially erases all the main Avengers and Stark starts the new Avengers protocol, which calls Spider-Man... Wolverine War Machine, I think, is there. Luke Cage and Iron Fist. I think that's all of them. Essentially, a lot of the new Avengers team in the comics are involved. So he shows up in that one and he's in the finale as well. And because he's Spider-Man and popular, you get some lines, whereas other returning characters don't. They just draw some of the characters in the finale, but they don't say anything. Which you can do with animation. That's the beauty of it. 
Is there anything else on 13 that you wanted to bring in? I think the ending of it's a bit weak, where the Avengers just lift up the roof of the tunnel and you're out now. It feels like the ability to win the situation is taken away from them, which is a bit disappointing. It's just a shame of the things being so short. You've got 20 minutes, you're not going to go through lots, and they really do have to get through things quickly to go on to the next one, the next one. You wouldn't want cap circumstance to be over so quick, but it just needs to be. They need to move on. So you're not wrong, but with 20 minutes... It's a real constraint. The Serpent Society were a good physical threat, though. They used them quite well. They were okay. They were just an evil villain. Kill all the civilians, do what you need to do. They had funky powers, but I've never been so much into that. I was when I was 10 and I was buying the toys and what have you. They were okay. I wasn't massively impressed by them. They were fine. They turned up, they twiddled their moustaches, they did what they needed to do and they cleared off. Sometimes for me, a villain is useful in the context of what they're trying to do. So if you have just a physical threat that hasn't got really any depth to them, but the whole point of it is that you've got this epilogue to the secret invasion plot where Cap isn't trusted and the actual villain is the mistrust that the civilians have of them so it's okay to just have these cannon fodder type villains with some funky powers that they can fight for the purposes of a story like that yeah all they needed to do was put the civilians in danger and they did that they did it well they were what they needed to be and they had funky powers to do it it's a shame for a viper to be relegated to that but nonetheless the society did what they needed to do you could have had an angle of didn't us fighting together on that scroll ship mean anything did it not make you think about anything differently exactly that was the bit that was wasted and they just lock them up in chains and everybody's fine with it even viper's fine with it well she's not she knows she's going to get rescued but still it's a shame however i understand that that was a plot too far there just wasn't time that's a shame because i'm always going to want that more personal side of things the justice league cartoon interestingly justice league unlimited as it was called by the end of it the finale of that is they're fighting dark side and it is bringing all the villains because we need all the muscle we can get and then when the situation's resolved you've got all these villains here that are free and they have to do something about them and the justice league all decide let's give them a five minute head start yeah that's a simple thing that works in that circumstance it's not the first time i've seen that where good guys and bad guys have to then go back to it it's not groundbreaking but the fact that it acknowledge it is worth doing yeah. Now the thing that brought us together is over. What do we do now? Well, we're just going to return to the status quo, but we're going to give you a five minute head start. And we're not going to think about all the people that are going to be killed as a result of this. But this is why human emotions are complicated, because everybody understands that it still works. Yeah, it does address it. And they do address it to a degree there, where Viper's like, you know, I was quite happy with the way things are before. I'm just going to go back to my team of snake, not snake people, as Peter Parker obviously points out with one of them. You can't be a snake if you have arms. And he rips the robot arms off. And you're like, no, you're a bit more like a snake. There you go. Yeah, Parker's humour. Yeah, that's what he does. Anything else on 13 then, before we... Getting to our last point. Not on 13. I do feel like we should give honourable mention to the bugbear that stalks this show. Okay. Which is that I think in season two, they've toned down some of the rampant abuse of the female form. There's less butt and boob introductions from the characters black widow still suffers the poor woman cannot come in with her face to camera she has to come in with her backside to camera which is a real shame she can't find a costume that zips all the way up either it's terrible i mean what do you do and then (laughs) you've got the wasp when she gets defeated what's the thing that takes center stage her cleavage the villain is literally gloating between her breasts it's just a bit nuts so i do use the relative term out there i think it's slightly less they toned it down but it's still there 
One of the reasons I asked you at the start, actually, what do you think the age range for this is because of that? Okay. It's clearly a show for young boys, early teens, that are going to enjoy looking at the pretty women in the skimpy costumes who are all exceedingly well-proportioned. That's why I said throughout this, I made reference to it being a boys' cartoon, because it really is a boys' cartoon. But I do wonder if somebody had a conversation between series one and two and said, can there be a few fewer boob shots, please? There are, but it's still a bit too gratuitous. I don't think anybody would challenge that, but at least they were going in the right direction, I suppose. (laughs) It's not that the MCU learned. Black Widow, the first poster she was in, it's the same. She's leading with her backside, looking over her own shoulders. So the character is obviously screwed. I don't know if it was like that in the comics, but I can't catch a break. The thing that comics often do is they're essentially drawing naked women, but they have costumes on. Yes. There's no indication that they're actually wearing a costume, if that makes sense, other than the fact that they're wearing a costume. Oh, it's perfectly form-fitting in all cases, absolutely. Insanely form-fitting. It's not leaving an awful lot to the imagination. I think in season one of this show, there's an episode where Wasp is sunbathing and she's in a tiny bikini as well. Oh, oh, yeah, there is. Yeah, that's what I mean. They toned it down. They moved in a direction. They didn't get rid of it. And you have Ms. Marvel. She's wearing a skimpy outfit. Which is essentially just her comic book outfit, fair enough. From the point that she was Ms. Marvel, not from the point as she was in the comics at that time. I think she was Captain Marvel in the comics by this point, or about to be. But she's Ms. Marvel in this. And they do that origin episode where you have Marvel there as a character, and she ends up getting powers, and she obviously becomes an Avenger. I think she's very good in it, though, as a character. She isn't defined by the fact that she's the pretty one in a skimpy outfit. Relatively skimpy, but yeah. She's only in a leotard. She's not got boob cones or anything, but yeah. It's Jennifer Hale voicing her in the cartoon. She's a really good voice actress. You hear her voice in loads of things. She's female shepherd in the Mass Effect games. If you've played them or are aware of them. Aware. She was Black Cat in the 90s Spider-Man cartoon. She turns up everywhere. Yeah, the the young boys, that's something you get from the comics. And they could have made a choice not to draw them like that in this cartoon. But they made a choice to draw them like that in this cartoon. But you should say more so in season one. I don't think there was a lot of female characters in season one. There aren't that many in season two either. No, as I say, I made sure to mention that throughout. I definitely think it's a boys cartoon. In season one, I think you have Wasp, you have Widow, you have Maria Hill, Mockingbird and so on. All the side-ish ones that turn up here and there. But it's a problem that the MCU had as well. It was a boys club for quite a long time. Mm. Problem that most superhero stuff have, really. The female-led ones take forever to happen. And it seemed to be because the studio execs fell out of favour with female-led superhero films because all the ones they made earlier on, things like Elektra and Catwoman and stuff, all failed. But they failed because they were rubbish. They didn't fail because female superheroes don't work. Even then, the female-led superheroes in the MCU, certainly movies, haven't been great. Captain Marvel is fine. Black Widow's fine. Yeah, the stuff that they've been given has been poorly scripted. Would you say that Hawkeye, the show, is a female-led thing? I think it's co-led. Yeah, it's a buddy show, so it's definitely the two of them. So I wouldn't call it a female-led, I'd call it a buddy show. It's being propped up by the male character. Yeah. Whichever way you want to slice it. In this, the Fantastic Four, you've got the Invisible Women, but she's not prominent and she only appears as herself once in the episodes we've watched. So they still have a woman problem in these things, as in they don't like to feature them in prominent ways as they should. One for the season three that we'll never get. Anything else on the show in general then? No, I wanted to get that one in at the end, but that's fine. Okay, we covered that then, we hit that quadrant. So as our last thing, we've talked a little bit about it, but what are your expectations for the upcoming Secret Invasion TV show? Are you looking forward to it? Are you worried about it? Do you think it's going to be any good? Well, I'm too coloured by my bias on this because I still worry 
that will have the problem of the emotional plot. I don't think that's founded, but I carry it with me. There's no reason to think they'll stumble into that. But then I've not enjoyed the writing through phase four. So no reason to believe that the writing through phase five is going to be any better. But again, is that really fair to hold over a writer that I don't even know who's writing it? Maybe they've not had a go yet. Maybe they'll be better. So I will say I'm really wary about this and I'm really worried that it'll be NAF. However, if I'm logical about it, then I should be able to put both of those aside and go in clean. And I'll need to do that when I watch it. I will watch it, but I need to take away my darkness before I enter the forest on this one. As for what I'm expecting, I'm not expecting anything. I've seen teasers. I've seen the old things. It looks like it's going to be a spy thriller. That's correct, I think, for the scroll. But other than that, I don't really know enough to know if I'm excited by it or not. I think from your point of view, it might be a bit closer to the stuff you like in comic book adapted properties, the more grounded side of it, because it is going to be a more political thriller thing. You've got characters like Fury, Maria Hill, and Rhodey is the only superhero-ish character in it, but you might not even armor up at any point. Yeah, you're right on that. Actually, it is set back where I want it to be with more personal problems Although it'll still be the entire world's at stake because they're going to take over or something. So they could play that card a bit too heavily. But yes, they'll have to solve problems the human way. That makes it sound like I'm anti-super. I'm not. I just like street level. I will always prefer Spider-Man and Daredevil over the galaxy-spanning stuff. So I don't need there to be no supers. I just need the stakes to be a bit more believable. So in that, hopefully, if they stay at that level, I agree. I like the more street-level stuff better than I like the higher-stakes stuff, although I think there's room for both, and I do enjoy both. Although I'm annoyed by the tendency of the higher stakes stuff to infect the other side of it it seems like people aren't confident that you'll be interested in a story unless everything is at stake and it can't just be that this is occurring here and we need to deal with it and that's important because the people here have to deal with it no the expansionism principle is applied now across so many films that it's affected the real world situation outside of the film the actual production teams and the producers have succumbed to expansionism which is a madness but what can you do and like i said earlier i think this show is going to be more about the presidents being replaced or the vice presidents being replaced or whoever people high up in political influence or people high up in the cia or the fbi or something there'll be agents at key points in an infrastructure or maybe they'll replace i don't know a ceo of a company that's more influential than the government because that's the way it is now we're all in the pockets of big companies that kind of stuff yeah i could do so it could be interesting in that way how they'll tell that story without it having to result in a massive action sequence that doesn't make any sense i'm not convinced they'll do that you might get your rocks on payoff after all this. <laughs> yeah they've been throwing that in for so long and never really done anything with it other than in the now non-canon shows like cloak and dagger They were the big bad in Cloak and Dagger. So we don't really know what we're going to get from Secret Invasion, which is kind of exciting, actually. Could be we sit down to watch it and we think, what's this? Which is good. I'm prepared to give Phase 5 a blank slate. I need to do that. So, yeah, we'll see. By the time you listen to this, we'll have seen Ant-Man and possibly talked about it. So who knows? Anyway, any final things you wanted to get in there before we wrap up that we didn't get a chance to discuss? No, that's cool. Did well, I think. Cool. Well, that was our 
what we're going to call it, primer for Secret Invasion that doesn't really tell you anything about the show that we're going to watch on Disney Plus when that appears. We're just talking about it because they shared the same name and possibly some superficial details. But that was that. That's our conversation there. So thank you for listening. I would like to thank Neil Stenson for the supplied music. And if you like what you heard, you can hit subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you get your podcasts, really. We are everywhere. Like the scrolls. We're everywhere. You can subscribe anywhere. And most of these places you can leave a rating. I'm going to determine if you're a scroll imposter or not by asking you what number of rating we would like. How many stars? Okay, I shall answer honestly and say I think the listeners should give us exactly the right number of stars based on how much they liked this. If they thought we were a three-star episode, they should give us a three. And a four-star, they should give us a four. What do you think? Am I a scroll? I'm not sure I can trust you. Normally you just tell me to shut up and not ask you, so we need to do further testing. Okay. Of course, we'd like five stars. Please give us five stars. If you want to talk about Secret Invasion, Avengers, Earth's Mightiest Heroes, or anything else, if you want to hear us dive back into more old school stuff then please do let us know and you can let us know by hitting us up on twitter or facebook just type in new before blog you will find it or you can leave comments under the article associated with the podcast on newbeforeblog.co.uk but until next time we will catch you and hope to catch you on new before pod <laughs>